3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR. This is Sonia speaking. Who else have we got in the studio this morning? We have Grace. And Pippa. <laughs> it's crowded in here. And Zoe's on the panel. Michaela's just giving us some support from behind as well. Um, we've got, as usual, a packed show for you this morning. Um, our first segment will come from Priya, on, who's on Thursday Breakfast. Uh, they're talking to Amber about the relationship between police and pride. Then I'll be chatting to Associate Professor Sharon Graham-Davies about today's elections in Indonesia after which we'll hear a short clip from Amo, a Nakba survivor. And then the show will end with a discussion from Ye Na Pasaran about journalism and artificial intelligence. But first, on to the headlines. Thanks, Sonia. It's been two years since the Taliban re-seized control of Afghanistan. Since August 2021, the Taliban have implemented severe and extensive attacks on the human rights of girls and women, violating almost all aspects of these rights. Recent crackdowns have precluded the closure of all beauty salons, which provide jobs, connection and community for Afghan women. Beauty salons provide 60,000 women with employment and their closure signals an increase in the assault against their human rights. Beauty salons were one of, the, one of the places that women and girls were able to gather together outside their, outside their homes in a women-only space. The Taliban has also dismantled services for women and girls experiencing domestic violence. Women have also been banned from most roles in aid agencies, resulting in more and more women and girls in crisis. Afghanistan women are ranked last on the Women, Peace and Security Index. A UN reporter has said that the human rights situation reflects the unprecedented deterioration of women's rights. Afghan women and officials at the UN have described it as gender apartheid. Guillermo Barraza is making history in Mexico as the first ever drag queen to host a news program for Mexican TV. In a climate where LGBTQ plus people and journalists are violently targeted, Barraza's chosen to visibly challenge the boundaries. The program Barraza is hosting is called La Vedrag, and its intention is to radically change the way the LGBTQ plus community is viewed in Mexican society. The program came to be when Barraza, a journalist of 10 years, dressed in drag to Mexico's Pride celebration in June last year, where he also hosted his public television station Canal Once. Despite receiving several death threats in the aftermath, Barraza seized the opportunity to talk candidly about how these issues affect the LGBT community. Jordanian authorities arrested and harassed Jordanians who attended or participated in pro-Palestine protests across the country, including those who engaged online in any advocacy since October 2023. Human Rights Watch said that some of those who participated in online pro-Palestine advocacy were charged under a new cybercrimes law 
Since October 7th, thousands of Jordanians have been engaged in peaceful demonstrations nationwide to show their solidarity with Palestinian people. Jordanian lawyers told Human Rights Watch that authorities have likely arrested hundreds for their involvement in advocacy online and offline. In August last year, Jordan's parliament swiftly passed the cybercrimes law despite criticism and without consultation with experts in civil society. The law threatens users' rights to anonymity and introduces a new authority with the ability to control social media. In the past few years, Jordan has seen a diminishing civic space as authorities increasingly persecute civilians involved in peaceful protesting and political dissent. Victorian police officers have walked in the Midsummer Pride March for the past two decades despite people protesting their presence every year. At last Sunday's Pride March, police were quick and aggressive in their response to protesters who walked in front of the contingent, with signs enchanted, no cops at Pride, and cops kill queers. Rue, a representative for civil resistance youth movement, said, We didn't anticipate the police to escalate the way they did, because people have been disrupting the march for many, many years, and it hasn't escalated super far. Rue said that last year's march was relatively peaceful. Red Books Day is on February 21st, 2024, marking the 176th anniversary of the publishing of the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. It is an international celebration and commemoration of the Communist Manifesto and the liberatory impact it has had on people's movements, past, present and future. Red Books Day was first celebrated on February 21st, 2020, 172 years to the day after Karl Marx and Frederick Engels published the Communist Manifesto. Initiated by left and progressive groups in India, it called for public readings of Marxist texts to celebrate left books, their authors and the people's movement they ushered forward. Red Books Day also emerged as a fight back against the violent far-right attacks and suppression of Marxist groups and ideas across the world. Against Marxism and rational thought, the far-right has published obscurantist and unscientific ideas, a fog around humanity. One of those Marxists who was killed was the Indian communist leader Govind Pansar, targeted by the far right for his rationalism and for the publication of his book, Who Was Shivaji? Pansar was killed on the 20th of February 2015 and the eve of the day when the manifesto had been published. On February 21st, 2020, thousands took part in public readings across the four Indian states of Andhra, Pradesh, Kerala, Tamil Nadu and Telangana. The call issued from India was answered by political parties, publishing houses, bookstores, writers and artists across the world. In this first year, over 30,000 people on all continents from South Korea and Brazil to Nepal and South Africa came together to read, organise and fight back. Since 2020, Red Books Day has continued to grow. Now we're going to be listening to Three Generations by Rafif Siada. Rafif is a Palestinian poet, activist and spoken word performer who currently lives in London. She has just released her third album, Three Generations, which was produced and co-written by Brisbane-based singer and activist Phil Monsour. Three Generations covers the story of women in Ziada's own family and of all Palestinian women, but each song tells its own tale. Many have themes of loss, loss of home, loss of life and a search for place in the face of callous or brutal oppression and the brutality of relentless war. The experience of the Palestinian people looms large over many songs. The world's largest refugee population, a displacement that started over 70 years ago and continues to this day. Every inhale. I am three generations of women who never made it past 40. I am three generations of women who never made it past 40. Erased one way or another 
bullets or memories of bullets stole them from us. I am three generations of women who never made it past 40. They were the wrong people, the wrong religion, in a state designed, exclusive, settled on earth and skin. I'm three generations of patching tents and homes, of picking up and starting new suitcases and keys, of saving scraps because the siege might come and it always, always comes, of sleeping on airport floors, of memorizing immigration questions and maps, of loving men, in love with their revolutions to really love of loving men too in love with their revolutions to really love of loving boys still wondering where home went of marking funerals as loud as we mark weddings of marking funerals as loud as we mark weddings of depke like life depended on it of joy and love against skies of steel of joy and love against skies of steel I'm three generations of women who never made it past 40 Every exhale I am there every sigh by a window Every bus ride to the prison waiting room Every hug long enough to be broken by a soldier Every trembling hand searching in the ruins Every candle, every notebook, every zatar sandwich between the notebooks. Every exam with no electricity, every whisper and kiss under the blankets so the kids won't hear it. Every angry stare at a checkpoint, every made-up lyrics because my mother spoke in poetry but could not remember songs. Every breath and every gesture, every meal, rough hands yet gentle. Every braid, fingertips dancing through thick black hair. Every braid, fingertips dancing through thick black hair. They are with me. They carry me. I am three generations of women who made it. I am three generations of women who made it. In my every inhale, in my every exhale, they made it. We made it. We made it. We made it. And that was the track Three Generations by Rafif Ziada. Last week, a group of anti-pinkwashing and anti-midsummer community members protested against Vic Police's involvement in the annual Pride March and in the corporatized, capitalist and violent foundations of midsummer. Priya from Thursday Breakfast spoke with Amber about what queer and trans resistance and community care looks like. This is an interview with Amber, a white queer trans settler, following the action at the Midsummer Pride Parade on the 4th of February. First of all, thank you so much for making the time to speak with me. I feel like we have this discussion or some version of it every single year. It does feel as we sort of reach the end of every year and leading into uh, the summer months, queers in NARM are consistently coming up against the encroachment of corporations, of policing, um, of, you know, the military industrial and detention complex on 
spaces that are supposed to be, I don't know, sites of queer life and pride and joy. And so I was wondering if we could maybe start off by hearing just a bit about the sort of exhaustion of having to have this fight every year around um, corporate pride and around Midsummer. Yeah, I think I think I'd reframe things a bit because I think what is exhausting, I guess, isn't necessarily like being in solidarity with one another like we were on Sunday. Like it is these, it is is like the pinkwashing and the ongoing violence of living in a highly unequal, violent settler colonial society. So I guess, yeah, I think like people involved in the action on Sunday took a lot of energy from it. And I guess sometimes I find it more exhausting when it feels like nothing is happening in a sense because we're demoralized around taking action, whether that be on the streets or care work away from the streets, all these different ways of building struggle. So I think, yeah, the tiredness is like, yeah, life in these, in like a colonial capitalist transphobic system. But I think there is power in when we come together on the streets or across the community. A hundred percent. And it was so powerful to witness, you know, community autonomous resistance from, yeah, from members of the queer and trans community. It's always the most marginalized that are on the front lines of upholding this resistance, especially trans women and, you know, people of color. And it is really powerful to see that uncompromising um, opposition to having, you know, to having these violent systems upheld and reproduced through events that are purportedly meant to um, represent and be safe spaces for queer and trans people. Um, but then undoubtedly, um, as you've mentioned, there is, you know, this sort of care work and, and community organizing that happens on the side. And, and sometimes that that's because, you know, there's nothing else like we have to look out for each other. Um, and there is also immense harm that's caused by things like um, police crackdowns and brutality, um, as we saw on the weekend too. Yeah, like what we saw from Victoria Police was Victoria Police being restrained, and that's there. That's the that's the comment of 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 police boss Shane Patton, who remarkably had a press conference later in the day, the first time ever after a Pride March disruption, such was how badly disrupted uh, Pride was um, by by us acting autonomously. And, yeah, I think you mentioned stuff around police violence, and I think it's good to put it in context that this was, like, police being restrained. In some ways, the Pride March is, like, a public relations, relations things for police, like the, the, like the hundred or so police that are officially in the march. They don't have their weapons so I think that's like a big thing about restraint, like police to inflict violence, which they are specialists in. They require they are, they require their weapons. So so like really seeing the corporate media, all the stuff around the violence that, that flips the reality that it was police that repressed the protest that we had at Pride March on Sunday at Midsummer against police violence. So in solidarity with you know the quotidian violence of policing in. Victoria that happens 
all the time and it is something that, yeah, as a white queer trans person, I don't face the brunt of, but we still know that still we face some police violence. So, and particularly like the high profile examples around the Posey Parker demonstration on March 18 last year where police protected the Nazi transphobe coalition and later on that time protected, uh, effectively protected reactionary and fascist violence by uh, like telling local councils to, uh, on police advice, cancel drag story times. So in terms of where I'm going with that, I think, yeah, policing is violence. Like it's differential really applied across like your social location or whatever. And I think for too long, we're just like sat by and haven't come together to challenge like the pinkwashing that we saw, that we see every Pride March and in other places. And it means that people invest in this mythology that stronger relations with police will actually bring us safety when in reality it's police that make us unsafe at protests and any struggle for liberation police are conservative repressive force that uphold reaction and fascism so so this was about challenging these narratives around police like queer and trans cops are cops and they still still bash you at protests they still are silent in terms of police violence and black deaths in custody they they are just cops so all this I guess police propaganda that has been successful in many ways in like uh, together with like the more white conservative politics over the last few decades in terms of yeah just going along with like the white comforts of like trying to live in a capitalist society is stuff that needs to be challenged and collaborating with the police excludes queers and it just upholds the violence of of the system totally and you know, we, we sort of touched on the issue of pinkwashing, which I'd like to talk a little bit more about, but specifically in relation to the cops, just to tie this part of the conversation off. Um, it is a PR exercise for Victoria Police to be there. And, you know, as we've seen with so many different forms of autonomous community resistance, including things like the web doc picket, police are there to uphold the private property regime of this settler colony. And as well, they play a coercive role in in maintaining, you know, the dominance of the cis-heteropatriarchy. And so the notion of diversity and inclusion in the police force and folding cops into uh, sort of pride march and that kind of thing is really just opening up further avenues for the, you know, for the police and for the violence of of the state to market itself as inclusive and progressive when actually, as we can see, things are, you know, the function of the police is is extremely regressive in terms of um, social justice. I wanted to turn to the issue of corporations as well and their um, pinkwashing through participation in Pride. And so I'm thinking about some of the major sponsors of Midsummer, including NAB, Woolworths, uh, Amazon, which is also a BDS target. Um, could you comment on that? Yeah, sure. I'll comment on the corporation second because there's stuff in your preamble that I'd like to address before I get onto the corporations and that aspect of Midsummer's pinkwashing. I think, yeah, it's good to put this in the context of 
different struggle because, yeah, for example, the like the Picket at Web Talk, queers, women, trans people overrepresented in that picket and keeping that picket alive. And it really shows how to have like a reactionary force in a pride march is just against any struggle for liberation. And yeah, this whole idea of progress, I think a lot of these narratives are like this idea of progress. We heard from the Minister for Equality that oh, things are progress. We have like LGBT cops now. Whereas really we need to like, I need to, I think it's good to draw from a different understanding of that. And that is like that things have been rearranged. And this is something I've learned from Dean Spade that having like inclusion of cops into Pride March, into the like, and, and, and there being LGBT cops is just a rearrangement of things in this capitalist society. It doesn't mean like the violence has stopped. It's just been rearranged. So you just have transphobia working in a way that also can mean that um, it's not that many trans cops, but it means you can be bashed by a trans cop and that can be experienced as transphobic as well. Or it means that like transphobia isn't just about like about pronouns. Even if your pronouns get respected in some way, it's just about uh, the differentiating labor market and like who is excluded and like downwardly pushed in the labor market and these things. Um, so we really need to undo the idea of this progress, progress that's in our heads around like what the state cultivates around that. And I think that goes into some of what you mentioned about corporations and pinkwashing because, yeah, we have all these corporations like NAB, Woolworths and Amazon. These are all corporations that make billions of dollars in profit. And who's that profit go to? It goes to the ruling class. It doesn't go for working class queers. It goes to... Um, the balance of this society, really. And Midsummer in its propaganda claims, oh, it's it's not about that. It's about supporting people in these workplaces. But that's not true. These these corporations sponsor Midsummer. They partner with Midsummer. They provide Midsummer with money. 70% of Midsummer's money is corporate and private donations. And in exchange, we see them just like um, pinkwash the inequality that they help, they that that is like exen, exen, yeah they pinkwash the inequality that is ex- existential to like the operation of a corporation because it's about profit it's about exploitation of workers and that's inherently opposed to queer workers so we can talk all we want about oh it's great like there's rainbow flags on the store there's rainbow flags people march like some corporation dress up in rainbow flags but it doesn't actually change the fundamental exploitation that's going on in the workplace and connecting back to labor market stuff it is the reality that queer and trans people and in relation to class race and ability face downward mobility in the workplace in terms of income um and that and and at the same time we have like these corporations marching down as if they're not like a key enforcer of that that hierarchy and inequality so that's the absurdity of how like things are being rearranged in 2024 compared to like you know before when homosexuality was like was criminalized criminalized in terms of um different laws particularly affecting like trans women gay men but also the invisibility of like queer cis women in terms of um trying to make her life in those criminalized times yeah, and 
the sort of corporate pinkwashing that happens as well. I mean, again, you, you mentioned the importance of contextualizing this conversation in relation to other struggles, but also I think it's important to contextualize this sort of corporate pinkwashing in relation to other kind of corporate moves to to paint themselves as progressive, for example, with Woolworths kind of coming out and saying it wasn't going to have Australia Day merch and that being a big topic of conversation when, of course, you know, a, a clear-eyed analysis of what Woolworths is doing there and what it's doing here sponsoring Midsummer is it doesn't care about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. It doesn't care about queer people. It cares about profit. And we see at the same time during a cost of living crisis, uh, you know, big grocery retailers like Woolworths and Coles price gouging and making a profit off, uh, you know, the poorest people in society. And so many of the poorest people in society are queer and trans and black. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Like it's a big, big, like glaring contradiction. And this is, these are the things that Midsummer like cultivates and normalizes the idea that this is like a good thing that having rainbows and corporations is a good thing that having the ALP and liberals that expanded like prisons and policing at record rates, like billions of dollars. We've got more police per, pa- per capita in Victoria now than the 19th century. Thanks to the last two decades of expansion of policing here. Yeah. So like this, this narrative of progress really just hides the violence of, of what's going on. And that was Priya from Thursday Breakfast and Amber speaking about the relationship between the police at the and Pride in the aftermath of this year's annual Pride March. You can listen to the rest of the interview at www.3cr.org.au slash rotations. You are listening to 3CR 855 on your AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or available through the Community Radio Podcast app. We're now going to hear the track Until We're All Free by Serene. Serene is a Palestinian Muslim woman living in the western suburbs of Sydney. Serene is an an aspiring filmmaker and music producer. Her first directional debut was her short film Towhead. The story follows a passionate musician with self-doubt who's struggling to become successful in the industry, especially because she is Muslim and wears the hijab. Serene is motivated to continue writing minority stories and breaking the stereotypes in every angle possible. Jumping in, I'ma be screaming like cannonballs. I see more 
Nothing beneath the smoke that your dreams entail Dread and hope, I heard their cries when the lights go out Laughing once, they ain't breathing now Midsummer dreams on which I groan Bleeding out, losing hope My ancestry ain't once been wrong You just a disease, don't call this home Say you'll fight, I'll land I'll fight till the end of time Until we're all free From the river to the sea Democracy be given no choice Freedom of speech but silence in voice Hypocrisy reaps They bombing for peace No water, no food Got nothing to eat Actions speak loud Talking is cheap Cease fire now May there be peace Yo, yeah. many killed by your hand Way more than you could understand Even your kids see what you got planned So I've got my fist up Get off their land Put up a peace sign They confiscate Yell out cease fire They take my pay You can do anything to save your face I got your name down in history's page uh. Say your fight I'll land Till the end of time Until we're all free From the river to the sea World War III for the profit sheet Breaking our bodies can't break dreams 2024, beat the drums of war But we don't want your war We won't watch a war 
does not get bombed, we all want peace But the war carries on for how long? And why do innocents truly die? Did a mother have to cry? Did a father have to curse? Why? News call sympathize, feels for lies But the truth is in the sky when there's nowhere to run And as the smoke clears up, they did it to colonize It's genocide, ceasefire! And that was the song Until We're Free. Just a correction on the artists, actually a whole collection of First Nations and Palestinian um, musicians who live in Gadigal lands of Sydney. Um, check out the video clip. It's it's fantastic. Um, so I'll just name a few of the performers. We've got BVT, Jafar, Ziadala and Kid Farrow. And, yeah, head to YouTube to, to watch it and, and yeah. Um, Associate Professor Sharon Graham-Davies has just returned from Indonesia where over 200 million voters will decide the archipelago's fifth elected president. She's the director of the Herb Faith Indonesia Engagement Centre at Monash with a focus on gender studies. Um, Thank you very much for joining us today, Sharon. G'day and thank you so much for having me. Um, Could you start off by telling us what are the main issues in today's election in Indonesia? Well, uh, there are a lot of issues. Of course, Indonesia is also struggling with uh, cost of living um, uh, expenses and particularly things like the cost of oil, uh, cooking Mm -hmm. oil, uh, fuel for running cars. Um, So these are are top issues. But also uh, the Indonesian election, the choice of candidate often comes down to who is most uh, popular. And so in a um, uh, campaign, the three leading candidates have mostly ca- uh, campaigned on um, presenting an image of themselves that they think will most resonate with voters rather than having specific platforms. Uh, but in saying that, there's some important policy uh, measures, and I think uh, all three candidates have said, if elected, that they will move towards uh Uh, on the international stage, recognising Palestine as its own country, for instance. Um, So there's some significant policy moves uh, that the candidates are espousing. And previously there were concerns about the front-runner, apparently, Proboa's human rights record, which seems to be eclipsed in this election, which is his third time running. Um, What's happening to the legacy of Reformasi? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely correct. So Proboa is leading the polls um, um, at the moment, is looking most likely to receive more votes than the other two candidates. He has um, an extensive human rights abuse record and was banned from a long time from entering Australia and the United States and other countries. Uh, but he has reimagined himself in this campaign, and so he's using on his election posters. He's characterised himself, so it's not an an image or a photo of the actual person, but he's turned himself into a cartoon character that looks very jovial and and like a cuddly uncle who is, you know, someone that that people want to go to. And given uh, the polls, it seems that he's been very successful in uh, reframing himself. And of course, you know, he, he has maintained a significant position in power, 
since Indonesia became a democracy in 1998. And such power means that you also get a significant say in the education curriculum, for instance. So if you wanted to tweak or radically change educational content to reflect a view of the past that was more favourable to you, then people are, are in positions to essentially rewrite history or at least to leave out uh, significant events that might damage your image. And how influential is his running mate? Well, (laughs) one of the really interesting things about uh, Indonesia is that you can be um, opponents for previous elections, as was Prabowo with the current uh, prime minister. So they they fought for the the president uh, at the election last time, and Jokowi won and Prabowo lost. Uh, But Jokowi appointed him defence minister. And now this time around, Jokowi can't run again because there's the limited, uh, you can only run twice president. But Jokowi, the current president, has a particular um, popularity that it was perceived that if his son would team up with Prabowo, that would give a really good ticket. Now, one of the problems, of course, is that Jokowi's son... He's only 36, and Indonesia's law said that you need to be at least 40 to run in a presidential race. But Jokowi's brother-in-law was uh, in a position of power to be able to change that law and make an amendment to allow um, the current president's son to run as vice president. So so the the political campaigning seemed to think that uh, having Prabowo run with the son of the current president would be uh, resulting in election success. And given the polls at the moment, that seems likely. Now, um, one thing that I'd be interested to hear about is whether or not there is generational change taking place, um, that the current um, younger generation of voters seem to have forgotten some of the struggles of the past. And you mentioned it a bit with the changes in the educational curriculum. Is Do you think that this is a significant long-term change that's happening? One of the interesting things about uh, democracy is that it allows, theoretically, everybody to have a say. So there's freedom of speech. And so Indonesia was under authoritarian rule until 1998, but that kept a lid on a lot of free um, speech. What happened in 1998 was that everybody could come out and say, you know, effectively what they wanted to do. But there's always louder voices than others, even within a democracy. So what we've seen happen over the last few decades is that democracy has um, um, allowed particularly strong voices to emerge and they have successfully repressed a lot of the minority uh, views. And so we see in Indonesia many examples of it becoming uh, more conservative and more moralistic. There have been a lot of changes to laws recently that have um, uh, encouraged, if not made it illegal, to criticise the president. To um, There's a new law that Uh, having sex outside of heterosexual marriage uh, will be criminalised. So there are many examples of it becoming a a less progressive and a more conservative society. And has the issue of political Islam been on the agenda for this election much? So Indonesia has more Muslims than any other country Mm. um, on the planet, but it's always been a secular 
state. And there have been attempts by Islamic parties to um, get momentum and, and potentially even um, put up a, a presidential candidate who would run on a platform of making Indonesia an Islamic country, for instance, but there has never been uh, widespread support for that. So it does seem that Indonesia continues to be rooted in a secular um, uh, nature. And, and by secular, um, I mean that there is still a separation of state and religion. But of course, in Indonesia, everybody has to uh, belong to a particular religion. So on your identity card, you have to um, um, disclose your religion. So you can't be atheist or agnostic. You must adhere to a particular religion. But there is still um, in-laws significant um, protections for people across the religious spectrum. And, and so different holidays are celebrated nationally. Um, so there's, there's no movement uh, that I see towards it becoming uh, more Islamic at the state level. There's still acknowledgement of different religions. And I know a lot of your work has been um, on gender studies and issues of sexuality. Um, can you tell us whether there are any different key issues for women voters in the, this election? I mean, cost of living is obviously going to be very important for women voters. Are there any other particularly gendered issues that are emerging? The, the big gendered issue for me has been the lack of agenda agenda i guess there there are a few women running for minor positions but um i was in indonesia a couple of weeks ago with um 65 monash students on a study abroad trip and as we traveled around um the the roads are filled with banners supporting different um candidates for the legislature uh, and other positions and you know, 95% of them are men. So, so women are just not visible running um, uh, for positions of power. And I haven't seen any evidence of gender being uh, a key issue, whether that is increasing women's political representation, whether it's increasing women's educational attainment, whether it's about... Um, um, ensuring that women are protected within marriage and, and moves to eliminate domestic violence. I haven't seen a strong push um, at the national level. Of course, there's incredible NGOs and others working on the ground to promote those those efforts, but uptake at the national political level has been very scant. And just to come back to the lack of women um, on the ballot, that's despite uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there a law that says that at least 30% of candidates have to be female or female yeah, identified? You're, you're, you're correct. Um, and so this was heralded uh, with lots of enthusiasm when it came in. But what happens in effect is that you can easily put 30% of your candidate as women, but you just make the bottom 30 mm. <laughs> um, candidates women who have absolutely no chance of getting into power. So you can tick the box to say that, you know, we've we've put up 30% of our candidates as women, um, but they've put them in positions uh, that will never get elected. And so this is how parties are getting around uh, this quota, the 30% quota, is by putting women's name on the ballot, but in such low positions that there's no chance of them um, or very little chance of them getting elected. Now, obviously, in Indonesia, there's huge geographical diversity. Are there any distinct regional concerns that are coming up in this election? Uh, 
so travelling uh, around Bali, we saw um, particular um, issues that, that are potentially unique to Bali, certainly around tourism and managing such a heavy uh, inflow of tourists and, and what that, how to live harmoniously with such, you know, your economy is reliant on tourists, but of course when you have so many as Bali does, how do you maintain a sense of culture and integrity? So. So there's particular issues there. In other um, places, such as Sulawesi, for instance, there's quite a lot of mining, huge investment by China. So again, there's kind of issues around making sure that the extraction of natural resources and the profits from that stay within uh, Indonesia and don't uh, all go out to China or, or Australia or other countries that are investing in there. And then uh, two of the candidates have committed to keeping the move of the capital city, Jakarta, mm-hmm. from its current location on the island of Java to the island uh, of Borneo within the province of Kalimantan. And so for people in Kalimantan, there's a lot of issues around, you know, what what will this look like if the capital mm. is eventually moved and how will this um, uh, sit with local customs and traditions and enable people who are living there to maintain um, their culture and their way of life. And what are the major challenges facing Indonesia on the horizon and how well placed are the candidates to actually deal with those? So one of the big issues uh, for Indonesia is uh, its place in the world stage. It's set to be, uh, within a generation, the fourth largest economy in the world. So with that economic power comes significant uh, diplomatic uh, power as well. Indonesia is non-aligned, so it it tries to navigate relationships with China and the US to keep them both uh, both as friends. With Indonesia's rising economic power, it may or may not have to choose uh, where to side its attention. So, so um, uh, globally, that'll be one of the issues for Indonesia, how, how to navigate that. Um, two of the candidates seem much more focused on local issues, uh, but one, Anis, has a PhD from Australia and so has... Uh, much more international engagement and connections and that may or may not help uh, with that. And, of course, internally, there are also big issues about moving the capital city, Mm. for instance, uh, which there's been a lot of resistance to. Um, And two candidates committed to uh, continuing with that move and then one candidate uh, not. So there's also domestic Mm. issues. Great. And lastly, is there anything else that our listeners should know about what's happening um, today and over this period in Indonesia? Well, I, I think one is to maybe celebrate our, our uh, neighbour a bit more. Like we, <laughs> we constantly focus, I think, on a lot of the, the bad things and um, um, some of the challenges that Indonesia is uh, having and Australian media tends to pick up on, you know, if there's a catastrophe or, or some uh, negative event in Indonesia. But, but I think um, we should be celebrating that our largest neighbour today is somehow managing to uh, pull off the world's largest single-day election. They're having 200 million people vote. So Mm. they're expecting an 80% voter turnout, which is extraordinary for a country where voting is at your discretion. And it's not just that 200 million people are voting, but these people are spread across 6,000 
island. So, you know, I, th- I think given, you know, there's, there's wariness and, and, and we need to be critical of certain things, but there's also a lot to celebrate in Indonesia's ability to mobilise uh, potentially 200 million people and to logistically support that many people to vote uh, in a democratic election. Great. Thank you very much, Sharon. That was Associate Professor Sharon Davies talking about the Indonesian polls happening today. And in keeping, we'll have a song by classic Indonesian folk singer Iwan Fals, Surat Wakil Rakyat, or Letter to Our MPs, about the need for politicians to put the needs of the people first and not go to sleep on the job. It was written in 1987, but is still fairly relevant today. Bersafari di sana Di gedung DPR Wakil rakyat kumpulan orang hebat Bukan kumpulan teman-teman dekat Apalagi Sana family Di hati dan lidahmu kami berharap Suara kami tolong dengar lalu sampaikan Jangan ragu, jangan takut karang menghadang Bicara yang lantang, jangan hanya diam Depan kami dan negeri ini dari Sabah sampai Merauke. Saudara dipilih bukan di lote, meski kami tak kenal siapa saudara, kami tak sudi memilih para juara, juara diam juara juara.
Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged 3 and 4 can access 15 hours per week of free kinder. Kinder programs provide culturally safe places for children and families and are led by qualified teachers. Enroll for 2024. Speak with your preferred kinder service or local council today about how to register for a place. Corey Kids Shine at Kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash kinder. Authorised by the Victorian Government Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Creating space for women and gender diverse people to thrive, the Queen Victoria Women's Centre is now taking applications for their inaugural Feminist Historian in Residence. Over 12 months, revisit their historical records to uncover fresh stories and perspectives. The centre encourages proposals that challenge their history from an intersectional viewpoint and grapple with the complexities of colonisation. To apply, head to qvwc.org.au, closing Friday, February 16th. Queen Victoria Women's Centre is a 3CR supporter. That was Ewan Fowles singing Surat Buat Rakil Rakyat. Now we'll be listening to Armo speaking about the Gadigal Sydney Palestine Rally on the January the 27th, about his experience as an Akba survivor. I acknowledge Amma for Ad Shredi, who is a Nakba.
Survivor. Can you please welcome Amma Fuad? Thank you. I'm a Palestinian. My father is a Palestinian. 98% of the Zionist people living in Palestine, none of them, his grandfather was in Palestine. So I'm a Palestinian. I'm an eyewitness. The genocide doesn't start on 7th of October. I was one of the victims of the genocide started 1948. I was eight years old. I have so many stories to tell you, but I will make it very short. My small village was really surrounded by the tanks and the soldiers of the Zionist terrorist army. And I saw a woman. That woman was killed. And beside her body, there was a, a baby which may be two or three years old, crying over the body of his mother. And I have seen it in my eyes when the tank come and really walk over the body of the baby and the, and the mother. How can I forget this? This nightmare is living with me and will stay with me. My words, I want you to really touch your minds and hearts. We are the victims of the really, the most of the government in the world. They are now in intensive care. Their conscience must be dead. What's happening in Gaza is really brutal, aggressive genocide. Self-defense is not right. Occupation is not right. These people, they come from 70 different countries to Palestine. We are the owner of this land, Palestine. And we will be. My father gave the key of his home to one of his grandchildren. And that key will stay with us forever. One day I will return to my home. Don't ask me why, because this dream will never die. I will be always Palestinian. You are here today. today. You represent the human conscience of Australia. So many Australians then come to, to, to share you this demonstration, but they feel and they know that we are victims of uh, aggression and occupation. In the name of every newborn child in Australia, I say thank you, and your voice will be heard to, and will reach to Gaza. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Armo speaking at the Gadigal Sydney Palestine rally about his experiences as a Nakba survivor. Now we're going to be listening to a song called Nasak by Clarissa Batar. Clarissa Batar is an award uh, is a Palestinian 
proud musician and composer born, raised and based in Los Angeles, California. She graduated from UC Santa Barbara with a degree in music and an emphasis in ethnomusicology. As a student, Clarissa won multiple awards for excellence in her performance in ethnomusicology and have the privilege of playing around California with the UC Santa Barbara Middle East Ensemble. ناسك ناسك يا بلد ناسك نسيوك راسك يسلم راسك ليسلموك ناسك ناسك يا بلد ناسك نسيوك راسك يسلم راسك ليسلموك من كاداك ومن زاداك ومن فوت ميعادك سيصان أرض بلادك عملوا فيها ديوك Nasak by Clarissa Bittar. Sorry about my voice, a little bit croaky. Um, this week is a special week at 3CR because it is subscriber week. Um, it started on Monday and it goes until Sunday, I believe, the 18th. So, um, yeah, it's a perfect time to re-subscribe to 3CR. Pippa and Sonia, do you have anything to add about subscribe week 
One of the things that I love about 3CR is that it provides independent community-owned media free of commercial influence or government bias. Um, so become a subscriber to 3CR today and show your support. 3CR has over 120 weekly shows covering an incredible array of content, as well as our special broadcasts like Invasion Day or Trans Day of Visibility. If you become a subscriber, you can support Radical Radio today. But how are you going to subscribe? You could drop into the station and subscribe in person. Give us a ring on 03-9419-8377. The office is open from Monday to Friday, 9am to 5pm, or you can pay online by heading to the website, www.3cr.org.au slash subscribe. You can even set up a recurring subscription while you're there. Fantastic. So our subscriber rates vary a little bit. We've got the unwaged concession and pension rates for $40, the waged rates for $80, Band and organisation rates for $150 and solidarity for $300. Yeah, and becoming a subscriber means that you can be a active part of 3CR and just sort of the activism community more broadly. Um, I think that's definitely true for me personally. Um, yeah, being a subscriber and being a part of 3CR it does really connect you with a, an awesome community. Um, 3CR is a not-for-profit community organisation and subscribers are vital for 3CR's um, financial independence. So we need you listeners to subscribe. I think it's really important that um, 3CR is community-owned because that way it means that we're setting up a radical model of media that shows there are alternatives to the way that media is done either through the state-owned ABC public broadcasting or the commercial private broadcasting. And just existing as in that kind of model, I think, is really important because it also shows the way that other types of organisation and ownership structures can exist um, and thrive in this capitalist society. Absolutely. Um, It makes 3CR one of a kind. There's 400 volunteers that bring you Radical Radio 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So become a subscriber today if you're not already or renew your subscription. Perfect time to do it. Um, So just wanted to have a quick quick mention of some things, some actions that are happening this week. Um, Down at Camp Sovereignty, there's things happening every day. Today is a art day at 12pm. And then at 9pm, there's a film screening, um, the film After the Apology. Thursday, um, there's a community practice workshop at 4. 6.30, Treaty Sovereignty and Self-Determination Workshop. Friday um, at 9, there's some more screenings. Saturday at 10am, there's a Mums for Palestine playgroup. At 12, Remembering TJ Hickey at the State library that's on saturday um and sunday the annual free palestine rally then at four at camp sovereignty you can um head down after after the rally and just um chat and yeah connect connect with community and and let's not forget that today is the 21st anniversary of the death in custody of tj hickey yeah one moment, I've just got one more thing to, to mention. Um, so the Bunjil's Fire is doing a live broadcast, and that's today 
at 11 a.m. till 2 p.m. So that's down at Camp Sovereignty as well. So you can head down there and, and listen and watch watch it go live to 3CR. So to finish off the show, we've got Annie and Can who oh, Cam, sorry, who speak with Dr. Nicole Nguyen about her books, Terrorism on Trial and Suspect Communities. This is an expert of a longer segment. For full interview, you can head to 3cr.org.au forward slash Yana Pasaran, or you can listen to Yana Pasaran every Thursday from 4.30 to 5 p.m. We are back for our first show of 2024 with Dr. Nicole Wynn, who is the author of a number of books, including Suspect Communities and Terrorism on Trial. Thanks for joining us, Nicole. Thanks for having me. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about your area of interest and how you got into it? Sure. So my research looks at the intersections of national security and public schooling. And I've always really been interested in the relationship between education and war. What is the role of schools in mitigating or exacerbating conflict? And early on in my grad school career, I came across a a high school that had a specialized homeland security studies program that was about training poor and working class youth of color for low level work in the security industry. So as TSA WAN guys, as military grunts. This was a language of the teachers. And I really began just following the, the, the way that educational policy was shape-shifting in response to the global war on terror. And that's taken me to this ongoing criminalization of Muslim, Arab, and Palestinian um, young people through schools, but also through society. Your, your book, uh, Suspect Communities, Anti-Muslim Racism and the Domestic War on Terror, it, it takes a look at the, I guess, the CVE industry. Could you maybe for our listeners, if they're not familiar with CVE, just go into a little bit about what that is? Sure. So CVE stands for Countering Violent Extremism. And this was really a response to the public outrage over really explicit policing and criminalization of Muslim and Arab communities. So we can think about people might remember the police infiltrating mosques and other community centers to try to break the coals for potential terrorists. And after after a certain number of years, the public grew tired of this blanket surveillance of entire communities, the treatment of entire communities as potential terrorists. And so in the United States, but also in Australia, the UK and, and elsewhere, there was this effort to, to create a friendlier national security state. And so the idea was we can integrate Muslim and Arab community leaders into the national security apparatus after the wake of different forms of police brutality, there was this turn to community policing. This idea of that we collaborate with the police, we can be seen as more legitimate, we can expand police power, and we can gain access to different kinds of communities while repairing our reputation among community members. So CVE is really about mobilizing community leaders, religious leaders, mental health professionals, teachers, to use their daily interactions with young people to identify potential terrorists. And the way that they're asked to do this is that they're given these lists or warning signs of potential terrorists. And the early, the very early iterations of CVE, this was explicitly racialized. So if you were wearing, quote unquote, traditional Muslim attire, if you grew a beard, if you were attending a mosque, if you traveled to a Muslim country, if you expressed outrage over U.S. foreign policy, things that 
many, many people identify with, these became seen as a, as a pretext to criminalize, survey, monitor, and report young people as potential terrorists. And CBE has evolved as this can't really target people in this way so publicly. And so they started criminalizing things like feelings of alienation and isolation, trouble in romantic relationships. These are very common experiences that only really arouse suspicion when they're expressed by Muslim and Arab people. And so CVE was really about finding a friendlier way to criminalize communities without actually changing the impact or processes on communities themselves. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I can't remember there being a big uptick in surveillance of emo, white emo kids. <laughs> right, yes, yes. Nicole, obviously there's been a lot of money thrown at this issue. I assume then that there have been substantial studies on the efficacy of these programs. What what return on investment have people been getting? Sure. I mean, there's no evidence, uh, there's no social science research, you know, proving that this approach has enhanced national security. Um, and in fact, the quote unquote science driving CVE policies and programs is, you know, fundamentally flawed. National security experts and practitioners themselves acknowledge that this is actually not a science-based approach to the war on terror. Yeah, and there's no, aside from the fact that we we create these concocted sting operations where we provide the plots, the, the materials, the ideas, like, aside from concocting our own terrorists, creating our own terrorists, there's no evidence that we've unearthed some sleeper cells somewhere in Minneapolis, for example. So yeah, there's no return on on investments. What you do have is this growing outrage um, and frustration with police across the globe for this blanket criminalization and surveillance. Nicole, what's the relationship of CVE to, I guess, the related concept of de-radicalization and how is that uh, played out in communities in the United States? Yeah, so CVE is rooted in this idea that a person becomes a terrorist or engages in an act of mass violence at the end of this radicalization process. So people are adopting increasingly more radical positions and that these radical ideas combined with their social networks, combined with their life circumstances, turn a person into a terrorist. And again, this is not backed by any social science research. There's no evidence that the radicalization process is real. There's no evidence that shows that there are predictable indicators of progression in this process. Uh, but if we have this, if you know, we have this belief in the radicalization process, the solution is to de-radicalize people. So to provide interventions to turn them away from radical ideas that presumably drive people to the turn to violence. And part of what's problematic about this approach is that it not only justifies the criminalization of entire Muslim and Arab communities, it really locates the problem of political violence in individual actors. So individuals in this approach have these different pathologies. It can be a cultural pathology, a religious pathology, a, a theological pathology. And it means we don't have to think about the context in which violence circulates. So we don't have to think about, for example, the U.S. invasion of Iraq as producing all of these other forms of violence in response. And so that's one of the, it's another serious issue with how CVE 
has dehistoricized, depoliticized, and decontextualized political violence. So all we have to think about are these individual actors, these sad, depressed Muslim kids who might turn to violence because they're looking for action or satisfaction or friends. And we don't have to think about U.S. empire, military intervention, and so on. When when I think of young people looking for action, looking for friends, and then being recruited to fight overseas, there's another cohort that comes to mind in relation to U.S. empire. Um, Nicole, in the in the suspect communities, you talk a little bit about uh, Dylan Roof and some of these mass shootings that aren't defined as terrorism. Why is it that some crimes are defined as terrorism and some aren't? Well, there's certainly a, a racial orientation where individual white actors are insulated from this community blame. So after September 11th, every Muslim everywhere was blamed for the September 11th attacks. You don't see Dylan Roof, who shot up a a black Episcopal church in the United States. You don't see the FBI going into white churches and white communities across the country saying white, white communities have a terrorism problem. You have a narrative around mental health, access to guns, and so on. And those aren't unimportant questions, but they again divert our attention away from the role of, for example, white supremacy in driving some of these issues of violence. And so part of what CVE, if we think about white supremacy or racial violence as an iceberg, CVE directs our attention to these most visible manifestations of white supremacy. So the Dylan Roofs of the world, and we ignore all of the roots that produce these expressions of mass violence. But if we we use the word terrorism to delegitimize um, and really turn into sort of these evildoers through the through this mobilization of the concept of terrorism. So it does particular political work that's only really possible if you're a person of color, right? Where you can cast an entire group of people as evil, as as anti-American, anti-democracy, and so on. In the book, you speak to people within the national security apparatus. Could you tell us a little bit about the type of ethnographic research that you undertook and what is the concept of studying up? Yes. So ethnographers often go into disempowered communities to study their everyday experiences and then to report back on them. And anthropologists develop this idea that Sure, we can understand everyday people's experiences with oppression, with daily interactions with institutions, but we can also observe and interview people in positions of power to understand the everyday machinations of power. So I spent a few years traveling around the country, hanging out with national security practitioners and policymakers, going to their conferences, hanging out with them, having breakfast with them and conducting interviews with them to really understand from from their perspectives, how do they think about national security? How do they think about the global war on terror? What is their role in it? Um, and one of the things that you find is that things like the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, these big national security agencies are, they're unwieldy, but they're also unevenly understood by the people who work in them. So different FBI agents have different understandings of what a terrorist is or what their radicalization process means or what their relationship with the community should be. And one of the reasons why I find that really important is because for community organizations who want to resist, that want to resist these policies and practices, 
understanding the inner workings of the national security state could be really useful to understand how they're being criminalized and then how they can resist that criminalization. But it also reveals tensions among national security practitioners and policymakers that are also ripe with political possibility and the sense that there are tensions that could be pushed on to agitate for, for different kinds of changes in policy, in research, and in practice. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. And you can also listen on the Community Radio Plus app. We're currently talking to Dr. Nicole Wynn about CVE and terrorism. Um, Nicole, in your book, Terrorism on Trial, you undertook a, a close investigation of a number of terrorism trials in the United States. What were the main features of them that revealed how the courts have been influenced by the US war on terror? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Part of what I found is that the judges and jurors have to have to narrowly analyze cases before them. So a defendant in each of these cases did particular things, said particular things. And oftentimes the way that uh, prosecutors and the judge, judges shaped how the jurors understood the case was essentially saying like all of the all of the context of a defendant's actions don't matter, right? So if, it, if a young person grew up in Iraq, survived life under Saddam Hussein, survived the US invasion, and then fled to, to a Syrian refugee camp and experienced President Bashar al-Assad's really brutal regime, which included the use of chemical warfare, and then came to the United States and decided to return to Syria to fight against the Assad regime, joining ISIS or any number of rebel groups, the courts like don't actually really care <laughs> about those contexts when they're trying to adjudicate particular cases. And so again, the courts kind of strip all of the, the politics, all of the context, all of the history away from individual cases. But I think more broadly, if we think about individuals who go to Syria and come back to join ISIS or other rebel groups and are then arrested, charged, and prosecuted for terrorism-related crimes, it, it defies logic in the sense of what does, I mean, this is the, the premise of the book, is what does locking up an individual actor do to disrupt the broader Syrian war? And so like, if we're, we're actually interested in reducing violence, reducing international conflict, does this approach by the courts to arrest individual actors for things that they did overseas actually make sense as an anti-war posture? And for the most part, we find out that, one, this doesn't do anything to reduce violence globally. And two, it, it's an uneven enforcement. So we, we see a lot of people from the United States and the UK going to, for example, Ukraine to fight against Russia. And if these people had been Muslim going to a Muslim country, they would be known as foreign fighters and that act would be criminalized. But instead, people are being celebrated for going to Ukraine, for defending Ukrainian territory, U Ukrainian governance, and so on. So again, we have this uneven enforcement that really fails to recognize the, the contexts in which people live and also that the way to intervene in these conflicts can't really happen at the scale of the court. Like it, it actually doesn't, like what, what good does it do? Someone went and fought in Syria and came back. What good does it do to prosecute that person? Um, and so that's, I don't know, another major limitation of the courts. But there's all sorts of things. They, the admittance of expert knowledge by 
self-proclaimed terrorism experts. There's all kinds of limitations of, of what the courts can do in litigating the global war on terror. That was Annie and Cam speaking with Dr. Nicole Nguyen. We'll be back after this announcement. No more whispering in our arms Gonna rise up and break these chains And stop these killing games Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne invites you to join us on Saturday the 17th of February at midday at the State Library, Swanson Street, Melbourne to mark the 20th anniversary of the death in custody of Redfern teenager TJ Hickey. Honour the memory of TJ and the many deaths in custody families that now number more than 555 since the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. No one to date has been held responsible for these deaths. We demand end the practice of police investigating police and immediate implementation of all 339 recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Come along Saturday 17th of February, midday, at the State Library. Ischia Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. And in that vein, the coronial inquest into the death of Joshua Kerr at the Coroner's Court of Victoria is ongoing until Friday the 23rd of February. Each day the court runs from 10am to 4pm and there is a smoking ceremony every day at 9am. So if you've got the time, go down and show support for Joshua's family and for community. You can also join the court online or listen to recordings of each day through the link on the Dajua Foundation's Instagram, which is D-H-A-D-J-O-W-A underscore foundation. The Palestinian Film Festival is running at Nova Cinema um, from the 14th to the 16th of March, and they'll be showing nine different films. You can head to www.cinemanova.com.au slash events slash Palestinian Film Festival for tickets and more info. On Thursday, the 22nd of Feb, social and community sector workers will be walking out for Palestine. So they'll be meeting at the VCOS uh, building. I believe, at 128 Exhibition Street and they'll be walking to the Federation of Community Legal Centre on Burke Street. And just a reminder that this Saturday, the 17th of February at noon, there will be a rally to remember TJ Hickey, 20 years and still no justice. Um, They'll be meeting at the State Library um, on Swanston Street. It's organised with the support of TJ's mum, Gail Hickey, and there will be a speaker, Cheryl Kalfus, who is the founding member of the Indigenous Social Justice Association, Melbourne. She's travelled to Sydney many times to take part in actions demanding justice for TJ Hickey and works closely with his mother, Gail. So that's at Sat- on Saturday, the 17th of February, from noon at the State Library on Swanston Street. Awesome. And the, the weekly rally for Palestine is this Sunday at the State Library, at 12pm. Um, so that's around about it for today's show. Um, we heard from the first segment was from, oh, sorry, the most recent segment was from Yena Pasaran, which was um, an interview with Dr. Nicole Nguyen um, about terrorism. Um, before that, we had a short clip from Amo, a Nakba survivor. Previous to that, I spoke with Associate Professor Sharon Graham-Davies about today's elections in Indonesia, where 200 million people are going to the polls. 
Um, and our first segment today was from Priya on Thursday Breakfast, who was talking with Amber about the relationship between police and pride. Awesome. And it is Pippa's last show. So goodbye to Pippa. Where are you off to? I'm going to New Zealand, so very excited, but a bit bittersweet. I'm going to miss Melbourne and miss 3CR, so yeah. It's been great having you join us for the last... How long has it been? I'm not even sure it was before I joined that you were. I feel like I did my training in like September. We did the training we together. We did it together, yeah. It was September, yeah. Oh, it's been so a maybe while. like a month on air, yeah. Oh, sad. It is sad. So we're going to say goodbye to Pippa. Um, and that's it for today's show. Um, thank you all very much for joining us this Wednesday breakfast. And the coming up on air after this will be the Stick Together show. Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunzolini, at the fire in Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bundles Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.